You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and as we count down to episode 200 of the podcast which will be out this Friday I thought for today's episode we could look back over 199 episodes or 198 episodes before this one and revisit some of the best themes, some of the best answers from previous guests. So in this episode, I will plug in some of the best answers we've received over our entire time during this podcast. After each answer, there will be a two, three second silence, so you know where the gaps are. If you check the description to this podcast, I will provide timestamps for each answer and what theme and guest that they are taken from. Before we jump into it, I want to say a massive thank you to everybody who has listened to even one episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. This journey started with just me and my best friend recording our thoughts on an iPhone in a car park in Tesco, and now we're interviewing some of our favorite people on the planet and having conversations that we never dreamed of having. So Thank you for joining us on the journey. It means a hell of a lot. Please enjoy this episode. I hope that some of these answers, um, ones maybe you forgot about that can bring you so much value, or even to those who hadn't heard the answers before. This is a chance to sort of recap the best of as we journey into the next hundred. So thank you for joining me today. Let's jump right into the episode. What makes a life worth living? Very good question. What a good way to end. Um, a, a lot of things, I think. I um, think the most obvious one is to have meaningful relationships with the people you love. Um, to find uh, around you relationships of depth. Uh, with your family, your loved ones, your partners, your friends, uh, not to chase uh, ephemeral and uh, shallow relationships, but deep ones. And uh, that requires work. It requires time, commitment, and much more. Uh, but it'll reward you far more than however many thousands of likes you get on Instagram from total strangers who won't notice you when you're gone and didn't notice you much when you were here. Um, I think it is to immerse yourself in your time, but not to be a creature of your time. Well, as a quote of Schiller I'm very fond of, uh, he said, be a part of your century, but do not be its creature. Um, reach for truth and know that, know that, the, that it's not a game, that it's not something you do for its own sake but because it'll get you somewhere search for meaning not because the search is the point but because there is meaning and that you should try to find it make sure that by the end of your life you are wiser and know more than you did at the start don't find yourself in that pitiful situation of not knowing what you did or what it was about. Um, try to find your place in the universe and try to find some peace with it. Um, search for the big questions and immerse yourself in them. If you don't believe in God, try to work your way towards the things that are God-shaped. And don't waste your time. That isn't to say, by the way, that you spend your entire life or we should spend our entire life involved only in the deep questions. But don't skip them. 
don't spend all your time on Instagram and ignore the unbelievable wealth of knowledge and human wisdom and beauty that has been given to us and which we've inherited from amazing men and women who've gone before us. Uh, we have an extraordinary opportunity in this generation. We have access to all the world's music for free. We have access to almost all the world's literature almost for free. And that's not a small thing. Uh, I would always say, as somebody who's deeply immersed in the arts, that one of the purposes of, of the arts is not just to distract us in some way, but that it points us towards truths. So read, listen, study, and live as much as you can, as fulsomely as you can. And that would be a life well lived, or at least the start of finding your way to that. My favorite story uh, in the book is the one of the, the first family we know of um, and the footprints going back 3.5 million years ago. And you said it was seemingly in their nature to care about each other. And I won't go into the story too much because people can, can read it for themselves. But what can that very first family we know of teach us about family and the importance of love? I've always been uh, amazed, fascinated and reassured by the idea that there have been various different forms of humankind. That, you know, we've ended up being the last human apes on planet Earth. And we've been here about 200, 250,000 years. But there have been Neanderthals before us, and Homo heidelbergensis, Homo erectus, and a whole line of shadowy characters going back into the past. It, it appears that I think we're aware of as many as a dozen different kinds of, of human being that has, that has either sometimes they've cohabited, and, and, and now we've ended up alone. Uh, and there are recognizable behaviors that we can see in all of them. You know, the Neanderthals cared for the dead. Uh, they worked collaboratively as teams. And then you go back to, you're talking about their, what's called the first family. And it's a set of footprints fossilized in volcanic ash from 3.5 million years ago in, in Tanzania, the like Tuli footprints. Now they were made by Australopithecus africanus, the southern ape. They're so far back in the family tree that they don't even get the epithet homo. They, they're not classed as, as human, but, but nonetheless, they're in our ancestral line. We, we have inherited some of what we are uh, from the Australopithecines. Much smaller than us, much smaller brains. You know, we would look at them and see them as being closer to apes than us, probably. But nonetheless, they were on their way they were they were using tools they were they were functioning and the, and the fact is like totally footprints as they were interpreted by a paleoanthropologist called Mary Leakey seem to suggest two adults and a child walking together and it, it, it's, it's hard not to imagine them walking hand in hand the way your mind's eye pictures them and it, there's, a, there's a, a suggestion that one, one of the adults broke away from the pair for a while checked something that was bothering her and Mary Leakey imagined it was the mother and then rejoined the group and she said this was a moment of doubt that a, a mother, together with her partner and her child, she was bothered about something, had to go and have a look, and having reassured herself, she came back. So, and she, so that was 3.5 million years ago. A, a shadowy ancestor demonstrates the importance of looking out for the other people in the group. You know, she, she took herself away. To, to reassure herself that the threat was not real and then came back. And I, I think there's something amazingly reassuring about knowing that along with other characteristics, we have in, somehow inherited that fundamental building block, which is the importance of family. In the lockdown, so much was stripped away for people. You know, people had to stay off work and they were restricted to their homes for 23 hours a day and all the rest of it. How quickly did it become for most people about family? 
and being anxious about family we couldn't see, you know, mums and dads or grandparents or whatever, but suddenly isolated from them. So people stopped worrying so much about, you know, the football leagues or, or, or the Kardashians or a whole host of other ephemera. And it was suddenly all about, is everyone all right? Have we got enough food? Do we have enough tin tomatoes and toilet roll to get us through the week? So, so these, these moments, the lockdown's been very instructive as well as destructive, but it's been a reminder that very quickly, what is it that people are preoccupied with? Their kids, their mum, and that's the way it's been for 3.5 million years at least. I love this idea of love being ancient because you hear um, a lot of people talking about how love is just this um, concept we've made up. But another story I loved is this 50,000-year-old funeral um, before speech was even a thing. And you, the quote you used was beautiful. Love was there before the word. How does this make you reflect on, on, hu on human nature and love? And does it tell us that it is, you know, it is within us to, to love and be loved? Oh, I, I, I try to be an optimist. I think as well as the sort of Solzhenitsyn and good and evil, I, th I think in reality most of us have optimists and pessimists living inside us as well. You know, the pessimists there trying to, you know, pull us down. Optimists there trying to uh, lift us up. And I, I try to be uh, optimistic. And I think that the, the evidence, the, the archaeological evidence is there that can be interpreted as demonstrations of love. You know, there's, you're talking about the, a, a, a couple of burials of Neanderthals in a cave in Iraq. Uh, there's also the, there's the Mesolithic, the Middle Stone Age mother and baby, buried together at a place called Veddeck, which is modern day Copenhagen in Denmark. A, a, a beautifully elegant and careful burial of a, of a mother and an infant. And it, there's just no doubt that what you're excavating there, along with the stones and the bones, is love. And likewise, in the case of those Neanderthals, one of those Neanderthals seems to have been laid in a grave and then covered over with cut flowers. Now, how else can you interpret a gesture like that but as being grief and love? And I, I get a huge amount from you. You, you might, whether you, whatever you think about love, it, it's easy to to dismiss it or to think of it as being an ephemeral human emotion that that kind of comes and goes like like a flash of sunlight. But the fact is, if we can excavate it out of the ground after 10,000 years or after 50,000 years, that suggests that ephemeral, although it may appear, love lasts because we see it in the way that the ancestors treated one another. And, and it's important to me to remember all the time that the, world, the, the worlds that those ancestors inhabited were unimaginably different from ours. They had nothing of the kit that we take for granted, nothing of the scientific understanding that we build our lives upon. They had every meal they ate had to be gathered or hunted down and killed. Every fire had to be kindled. They had to think about shelter, death and injury were ever-present threats. And yet, in the face of those hard, demanding, short lives, again and again, they express the fact that they're thinking big thoughts. You know, it's there in the cave art, underground in places like France and Spain, and, and here in Britain, that people in the midst of those incredibly demanding circumstances, some of them still took it upon themselves to go and make some of the greatest art that the world has ever seen. They weren't worn down to animal and brutish by the harsh circumstances. On the contrary, at least for moments here and there, they were elevated to acts of love, acts of artistic achievement, looking up at the stars and the planets and trying to comprehend their place as fragile human beings in the scheme of the cosmos. You see archaeologically that people were taking the time to ask those questions and come up with elegant answers. And so it says to me that the very least we can do with all that we have is something similar. You know, be elegant and graceful and thoughtful in the face of life and death. How can we deal with loneliness? Well, 
loneliness is not all bad. So if you develop the idea in your head that loneliness is evil and that you need to get rid of it, that's a problem. Because to make anything, to think, to write, to come up with a business, to, to plan a podcast, you have to be alone, right? And most people can't stand that. They have to have their phone. They have to have some kind of attention from other people and validation. So you need to be alone. And that's not the same thing as loneliness. So there's a discrepancy. You know, if I'm alone with my thoughts and I'm trying to plan my next chapter, I'm not really feeling lonely, but I am alone. So there is a difference there. But loneliness, you know, you can feel you're in a group, you're in a crowd, you're with people in a restaurant, in a bar, but you're not connecting to them, right? So you can be lonely in a group, as you say, you can be lonely in a relationship. So it all has to do with the level of connection that you have to other people. And that level can be very thin and you can float through your whole life, always having these very thin, fragile relationships where nothing ever gets kind of deeper. Or you can try and go to the next level where you have deeper connections to people, deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, I don't want to sound like a, a new age Californian nut philosopher here. <laughs> I think because I'm hearing my own voice and it sounds pretty awful that way. But, um, but you know, uh, the reality is, is that we are a social animal, you know, very deeply ingrained in us. And so uh, one of the things I looked at when I was doing laws of human nature were studies of people who were really alone for long periods of time, like in prison, or the guy who was in Antarctica who was trapped by himself in a hut for six months, and you go insane. You start, you don't, you, you start losing a sense of reality. So we feel like we're human and we have a sense of reality by getting the eye contact with other people. And so if you're going through life locked in your phone and you're at a table with other people and you're still like, you know, looking things up, et cetera, and checking your Instagram account, and you're not really dealing with people and, and looking at them and dealing with their physical bodily presence, then you're, you're, you're going to be lonely. You're making yourself lonely. And I don't think you can overcome it virtually. Because I'm a great believer that we are actually physical beings. I mean, it's no great secret, right? And we need contact. We need nonverbal behavior that we can judge people by. We need to see their looks in their eye. We need to see their body language to connect to them. So if you're afraid of that, if you're always kind of trying to retreat to that virtual relationship, you are in essence making yourself lonely and you're going to... So you have to develop the idea that your connection to people can go, can be taken very superficially, or you can go onto deeper levels. And that is what I basically wrote about in the laws of human nature, particularly chapter two, about transforming self-love into empathy and the various powers that you can have through empathy. But um, yeah, I agree with you. Loneliness, you know, particularly now, is probably an epidemic amazing so let me just throw out a hypothetical question if you were a psychotherapist what would the first question be that you would ask um how are you really and um it's not a question that i invented um, I had a teacher, Brian Little, who's uh, today a professor at Cambridge University, and uh, he, um, he would always ask us, his students, he would, he would say, so Tal, how are you really? And by adding that really on, you know, we, we knew that, that he meant it, and that, of course, opened us up and, uh, and uh, helped him get to know us better and also, of course, helped us grow. So the how are you really uh, would be the first question. But I had a second question. And the second question would be, are, are you exercising regularly? And, and, and here is why, you know, there's a lot of research on, um, on the importance of physical exercise. 
And um, basically what it shows is that regular physical exercise has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. In fact, it works in the same way. It releases norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, feel-good chemicals in the brain. And um, so, so, so exercising, you know, three times a week um, is, 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 is important. And then when I looked at the research, initially I said to myself, wow, so exercising is like taking an antidepressant because it has similar effects. You know, it's not a substitute, but it, it has the same, the same effects. And um, so I thought, wow, it's like taking an antidepressant. But when I thought about it further, I realized that it's not the case. It's not that exercising is like taking an antidepressant. It's rather that not exercising is like taking a depressant. Why? Because we weren't made to be sedentary. We weren't made to sit around in, in meetings and, you know, exercise our you know, finger muscles all day. We were created to to be active, to run after uh, an antelope for lunch or run away from a lion so that we don't become lunch. Uh, we, were, we were created to hunt and gather. And it has become a real need. And when we frustrate a need, whether it's a need for oxygen or a need for uh, vitamins or protein, we pay a price. And the price we pay is not just physiological, it's also psychological. In other words, if we don't exercise, we actually compromise on our God-given or genes-given level of well-being. So it's like taking a depressant. Now, I know how difficult it is to increase levels of well-being. If I were a therapist working one-on-one -on -one with people, I wouldn't want to fight nature. I would want to work with nature. And working with nature means beginning here, beginning, you know, after you exercise, now let's get to work. I don't want to have to work against nature, just trying to get it back up to, to base level. So these are the two questions that I would ask. How are you really? And uh, are you exercising regularly? <laughs> it's interesting that um, you mentioned the exercise one. I did an interview with Kelly McGonigal uh, mm. uh, just a couple of weeks ago, actually. She just wrote a good book called uh, The Joy of Movement. Exactly. And one of the things in which she said to me, because um, I said to her, you know, why does the body reward us so much for, you know, for moving? I said, I've, ne I've ne you know, I've never understood this. And she said to me, well, think about it in terms of how we reproduce, right? When you think about sex, it's, you know, uh, a physical act, right? Um, and she said, it, you know, our body rewards us so much because we need, we need to be, we need to move to live, essentially. So I, I, you know, I, I found that completely fascinating. Yeah, we need to move to live. To live, we need to move to survive. Um, whether it's by running away or running after. Uh, so everywhere, you know, that it, it's only in the West that we've created such a distinction between mind and body. You know, there there really are two two sides of the of the same thing, two elements of the same entity, and um, by. Um, by using one, the body, we're affecting the mind and the other way around as well. What would you say would be the difference between depression and sadness? The difference between depression and sadness is that sadness is that depression is sadness without hope. Depression is sadness without hope. You know, sadness we all experience, you know, 10 times a day. We all have our ups and downs. It's natural. Uh, it's fine. It's, it's, it's unavoidable. Um, when sadness becomes depression and is when we lose hope. Um, because when we lose hope, then we don't realize that this too shall pass. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and it very often stays. It certainly overstays its welcome. Let me uh, bring back uh, the meat argument. What do we know from the data about the cause, the links between, say, meat consumption and uh, potential mortality? Oh well, um, just uh, ten days ago, June, July thirteenth, um, uh, in uh, in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the Internal Medicine Journal, Wong et al. published. Um, in uh, the 
NIHAARP study. This is the largest prospective study on diet and health in human history with over 400,000 men and women here in the States showing that replacing you know, 3% of calories from, uh, of animal protein with plant protein um, could significantly extend lifespan, so significantly decrease um, overall mortality, just 3% of calories. And so this was with um, animal protein in general. The worst was egg protein. So if you swap out eggs for plants, that's the best, um, uh, um, you know, in terms of uh, how detrimental animal protein was. But, you know, this goes back to 2016 with the, um, the famous uh, twin Harvard cohorts, the Harvard Nurses Study and the Health Professional Study, over 100,000 men and women. Again, 3% of uh, calories from um, plant protein, swap for animal protein, any animal protein. So plant protein beat out not just red meat, processed meat, but chicken, beat out fish, eggs, dairy protein, any single one of them, making a swap for plant protein for any of the animal protein significantly decreased um, overall mortality, meaning decreased risk of premature death. Mm. That is so, so interesting to me. So I suppose the question then comes, um, you know, is there a sort of upper bound or even a lower bound how much meat we could actually get away with? Oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat on your birthdays or holidays, special occasions. It's the day-to-day -day stuff that really adds up. Um, uh, probably the uh, closest in terms of what the upper bound is was a study um, that it was actually in the introduction to How Not to Die. I think it was in Taiwan where they looked at these um, these Zen Buddhist um, communities, um, which were nice because people lived there for decades and they had total control over the diet, like they had zero junk food, no soda. Um, but um, one just happened to be, um, uh, um, you know, strictly plant-based. The other one had uh, just for whatever reason they had um, a very low meat intake. If I remember, it was like one serving every three days or something. Um, so a single serving every three days. And so they had these two communities, very similar kind of homogeneous, very similar kind of, uh, you know, activity patterns, weren't eating junk, very stable diets for decades. And so this is like a, a really nice natural experiment that was set up um, to see, well, I mean, are we going to see, you know, noticeable differences in health if plant-based most of the time, but just every couple of days have a serving of meat. Um, and what they found was a dramatic increase in diabetes rates among those who had uh, um, just, uh, you know, one, two servings a week of meat, which is really quite surprising. If you would have asked me to predict um, what they would find from that study, I would be skeptical that they'd really be able to tease out differences. It's like someone who doesn't smoke at all and someone who smokes a few cigarettes. Like, is it really going to make that much of a difference? But it really did. And that was really surprising to me. So it would be less than once every few days. Now, can you get away with once a week, once every two weeks? Those studies haven't been done. We're not, uh, we're not sure. But uh, certainly it's not all or nothing. It's the more we can cut down and replace it with healthy whole plant foods, the better. So provided that a little bit of fear is what is how humankind to, <laughs> to survive, right? Um, we fear and a healthy level is what allows me not to go with a metal rod on the beach during a lightning storm. We know <laughs> how that ends. So when the fear becomes debilitating, when the fears prevents us from living, that is when the fear is unhealthy. So we need to recognize that we need to have a level of awareness and fear, but it cannot prevent us from living. Uh, with Will, one of the things that I think he did that was uh, very uh, important, I don't know what the extent of the documentary, but in real life when I met Will, we spent about an hour and a half on the dock talking. He had a lot of questions. Um, a very open mind, which is the other one that sometimes lacks when people have fear, they come into the conversation with me with this, this is, this is my truth. And no matter how many times you say, well, look at these, you know, 10,000 videos or 10,000 minutes or listen to me and these other hundreds of people that do this, they're like, no, 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 and it's blocked. Will came in with an open mind and then they did the first set, which is knowledge. He asked questions he uh 
kind of like as I answer something, he asked something else. I remember then I filmed the little segment and then when we stopped filming, he and I kept walking and he had more questions and, you know, generalized questions or specific questions. And I think that's how each one, every one of us can do that is we need to acquire knowledge. I do believe that fear stems from a lack of knowledge. The least we know, the more fearful we are. Uh, let's bring us back to three, four months ago. How, I don't know if your social media, mine was insane. I actually had to stop, you know, actually to mute several people because uh, through the fear dictated by not knowing COVID, I kept receiving every day those uh, videos like, oh, it's the, you know, you need to do this, you know, hold your breath for 10 seconds. And this Chinese doctor says this. And, and it, that was all fear, which then created all this massive panic as we start knowing a little bit more about COVID or other things, uh, those videos have disappeared. So those myths has also disappeared. So with knowledge, the myths dropped and all of a sudden it's like, wash your hands, wear your mask, keep social distancing. All right, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's a virus, so humankind has been selected by viruses for all the millions of years you've been that. It's like, oh yeah, you have a point, okay. <laughs> and so it's like, well, right now we don't have a vaccine, so it has really negative, and all of a sudden, the fear went from like this crazy behaviors to, okay, yeah, I can co coexist with this. Because what I think the believe is we need to coexist into knowledge, right? And then if there's a one more step, which is confronting the fear in small steps, through the knowledge and through the guidance, uh, some fears are, are healthy and I will always remain healthy. Um, some go beyond healthy. I have, I've been hit while driving a boat by a lightning. And I do have an extreme reaction to simply the flash. If I'm outside in an open space and there's a flash, it really alters my reaction. So what I've been working on is as I hear thunder and all of that, I'll take small walks. Right? And I'll go with uh, my friend and I, as we're walking, you know, maybe you see the white through the clouds and you hear the thunder several seconds later. I'll be like, is this still okay? Because in my mind is I need to run home. But in other people's mind, it's like, no, no, this is still, you know, several miles away. We're still okay. And so work through that. Now, am I going to stand underneath the lightning storm to take pictures of the lightning like some friends of mine do? I've said, absolutely not. <laughs> but if I have, let's say, a fear of sharks, first I recommend people, and I just finished a conversation, it's like Google sharks. When you say sharks, what does it mean? Because a lot of people just do this, oh, well, when you enter the water, they, can, they, they exchange you for a seal. That's the reason why they eat people. It's like, they who? Because there's 520 plus species of sharks, and the smallest shark in the world is this size. So if he thinks you're a seal, most likely it's going to run away. Furthermore, it doesn't live where the seals live. It lives in the abyss of the ocean. And the biggest shark in the world feeds on plankton and is known as the whale shark because it feeds like a whale. So we have these boxes. Some, the first thing I usually tell people is like Google shark. Google the smallest shark in the world, the biggest shark in the world. Then Google what do sharks eat? And you'll find that there are sharks that eat, yes, seals. Some will eat turtles. Most of them eat fish, quite a lot eat crustaceans and mollusks and all of that. And all of a sudden you're thinking, well, if I encounter a shark that eats mollusks and crustaceans, is that a danger sharks to humans? No. So then it goes back into all this uh, review of understanding, right? So if I'm on the surface snorkeling and I'm in an area where there are great whites hunting, is there an inherent risk? Yes, because I do have the size and the shape of a prey for this species of shark. If I come to the Bahamas and I'm snorkeling and below me there's not just nurse sharks, is my shadow, my shape gonna tell anything to the sharks that I'm prey? No, chances are they actually think that maybe you're a predator because now you're big, you know, five foot five plus, you know, your three foot fins and all of that. You're moving around and splashing. You're coming over them without any fear. The nurse sharks will think, oh, predator, and will swim away. And so that's what I try to teach people is you, if you don't have that knowledge, then you can't confront the fear. And if you go in with a, 
preset knowledge which is incorrect obviously will not be able to crash through that fear so i, I guess most listeners will have heard of lord of the flies or even have read it or basically have been forced to read it while, <laughs> while they were in school uh, for those who don't know you know it's a story of kids being in an air crash uh, and then ending up on this uninhabited island um, and they try to build a democracy of sorts but it doesn't really work out at the end at the end of the novel which is written by William Golding a British author uh, at the end of the novel three kids are dead and the message is look this is just what we're like this is just what kids are like if you give them freedom then they'll behave in a pretty horrible way um, and that's the, that's the lesson we taught to millions and millions of kids for decades. Um, now, I wondered while I was researching this book, whether it has ever happened, because that would be interesting, wouldn't it? If we could sort of find a real life Lord of the Flies case study, and then, you know, see what the real life Lord of the Flies would look like. Um, now, I'm of course a proper, uh, researcher so I started on Google <laughs> so just googling like Lord of the Flies and real life uh, or kids on an island and the first thing you stumble upon are all these horrid reality shows because you know the, these people who work on reality television they, they have the beasts uh, yeah they always come up with these horrible crazy ideas uh, but then after a while um, I did actually find one case that supposedly in 1965-1966 Six kids shipwrecked on an island and survived there for 15 months by working together. And then I wondered, you know, maybe these kids are still alive. They would be around 70 years old right now. And the captain who rescued them, uh, maybe he's also still alive. He's an Australian captain called Peter Warner, now 90 years old. Um, so yeah, that's what I spent the next five or six months of my life on, tracking these people down. And I found them uh, in Australia. So I traveled to the other side of the globe. I live in the Netherlands. Uh, myself and um uh yeah uh, peter warner the captain and his best friend mano who was one of the real life lord of the flies kids um they um they told me what really happened and if it, it would have been if it, this story would be a hollywood fictional movie and people would say ah oh, that is so unrealistic that would never happen you know but it's it really happened the real Lord of the Flies is a story of friendship, of resilience, of working together in very difficult circumstances and surviving. So yeah, it's, it's really been a, the highlight of, of my career so far to, to have been able to actually track these people down. So what actually happened when these people were, were on the island? Well, it's interesting. So uh, a couple of things. They worked together in teams of two, uh, two to be on the lookout for ships, to, to tend to the garden and to, um, to cook. Uh, sometimes they ended up in fights, but then what they would do is that one would go to one side of the island, the other would go to the other side of the island. They would cool off a little bit, you know, have a time out and then come back and say sorry. That happened a couple of times during their stay there. Um, they wanted to stay in shape. So ha they had their own gym with their sort of own improvised weights, uh, very curious. Uh, they had their own badminton court uh, and yeah, they uh, made a, a sort of a guitar from some of the uh, pieces that of the ship that was wrecked on the island. Um, and so they made a lot of music. Uh, yeah. And they were bored quite often, but still managed to survive. So when they were rescued, uh, after 15 months of well, rescued is maybe not even the right word because they could have lived there for years if they would have wanted to. Uh, but when they were found by this Australian captain, they were in really good shape. Um, actually, one of the boys had fallen down, down a cliff and broken a leg, but they had managed to heal that with traditional medicine. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, in almost every single way, the real Lord of the Flies is the opposite of the fictional Lord of the Flies. Now, I do understand that it's only one story. It's just an anecdote. But if millions of kids have to read this fictional story, then why don't we also tell them about the one time, the one single time that we know of where it really happened? Because that's a completely different story. 
and there was one quote that I highlighted that just I remember that it just spoke to me and it is around this idea of we're all looking for the the quickest fix and you said if someone developed a pill that contained every life-saving substance in a serving of broccoli we would all start taking that pill immediately yeah we don't you know we don't do it so why do you think that you know we are just so ignorant of these superfoods these life-saving things that are right in front of us and, and why we're just looking for that pill because we don't want to do the real work mm. we don't and <clears throat> there is no one thing with let, let's unpack it a little bit so if i'm eating mcdonald's twice a week three times a week three times a day whatever it is or i'm just eating junk there's mental, emotional, physical, chemical, biological, microbiological. All systems have now changed as a result of what I'm putting in my mouth. Now you've changed your environment. That environment now has, ha has other needs. The microbes. You've changed the environment down there. You've changed. You've, you've shifted healthy microbes and you've now given, you know, un uh you know like worse microbes you've given them food so now the intelligence of those sends out light signals biophotonic information to your cells to your microbes i need more of that so you're thinking okay i need i need to eat more of that sugar and then i get my insulin and i get my adrenals and i get all these stimulated things and you've now changed your environment now you're kind of a victim to the choices you made and so now you're addicted to all of these habits so if i said here's here's the way here's this photosynthetic grabbing of solar sun energy converting it into photosynthesis converting it, uptaking the nutrient rich hummus and uh, microbiological systems from the earth and and melding it bringing it from the sun and creating this incredible fruit and broccoli and sun living energy foods like the the medium of those entities the earth and the sun meeting that is food think about that so then if i'm going to shift to that guess what i have to give up i have to give up all of the chemical uh, biological, uh, stimulated, addicted, uh, physiological, endocrine, all of those things that are addicted to that other stuff. And I have to deal with the mental and emotional aspect that got me there in the first place. Who knows what that is? Maybe you were abused. Maybe you don't have self-esteem. Maybe you don't have whatever. But the ownership that we have to take for ourselves in our lives lacking people just don't want to do it they don't want to take ownership they want to stay over here and they want to eat all their cake and then be able to take the pill without the work without the work of un unpacking who are you what are you who are you being now really you're being uh sick tired overweight uh no energy and barely can play with your kids is that who you are that's who you're creating yourself to be so people you have to unpack and this is by the way it is a constant ongoing responsibility that is all on us every day every second our responsibility our choice life happens we choose. Life happens, we choose. Life happens, we choose. We get to choose how we react to everything. So if you want to keep all of that stuff packed down and just eat your Dorito chips and eat your pizzas and whatever, then cool. That's your choice. But that's it. You only get to go so far.
in the game of life because there is a consequence to those actions. You will have to pay for those investments. You have to pay that credit card. You can pretend all you want, but you are paying with that freaking credit card. You don't have the cash. So you got to pay up. And unfortunately, you kind of get by and you get stimulated and you go day to day to day to day to day to day, week, month, year. And all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, what is this pain I have in my stomach? What is this bulge I have on my lymphatic system? Like, oh shit. Like, what is that? It's a tumor. It's a cancer. It's, it's heart disease. It's diabetes. Things don't just show up. Like there's an environment that creates the environment for those things to grow, to proliferate, to invite in or invite out, which is why, listen, take care of yourself, drink well, drink great water, sleep, move your body, eat a wide variety of poly, poly, polyphenolic incredible antioxidant food eat the rainbow and take care of your relationships and be happy hell just by the act of being kind we absolutely know is a chemistry set of oxytocin serotonin vasopressin that stimulates the immune system that elevates the brain and that creates longevity markers in the body so you get so much benefit by being kind to people but think about all those people that are also pushing pushing all this down and you're really not in congruence with your real self so you're underneath that you're resentful you're pissed off you're not living the kind of life you don't have the energy you want you know blah 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 you just keep going down that path so to summarize People just don't want to do the work. They don't want to actually exercise the humanness of them that take responsibility of yourself and your life. And you don't get to get out of jail free. You don't get a super secret pill to take care of everything that you've so successfully divorced, tried to divorce out of your life. (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> so, mostly all over the world it would be considered a tragedy if someone dies young right? right i suppose when i look back through history let's say emily bronte died i think it'd say something like 30 kobe bryant died at 42 alexander the great at 35 john keats all these people died very young but yet we still know who they are now they lived a deep life perhaps instead of a broad one. So what would the Stoics say about dying young? Yeah, the Stoics have a lot to say about that, especially Seneca, who was a first century Roman uh, Stoic. He was a a little older than than Epictetus. Uh, In fact, the two must have met because Seneca was Nero's advisor. Um, And so they must have met at some point, although we don't have any record of of this meeting. But Seneca writes a lot about about that sort of stuff. So uh, he says a couple of interesting things. He says, first of all, when people say that, uh, that somebody's died before their time, they don't know what they're talking about because there's no such thing as dying before your time. You die when you die. That's, that's it. Um, you know, your death is the result of the universal uh, web of cause and effect. And so what you mean is you die earlier than your statistical expectations. Yes. But, but early, it's no, there's no, you know, it's not up to you. It's up to the, to the universe when you're going to die. So there's no such thing as dying early or, or, or late. Um, but then he says, and that's more, more pertinent to the, uh, to the question and the way you, you put it. He says, so since we don't know when we're going to die, and since we, it's not like we can avoid it, it's not like we can do anything about it. So when it comes, it comes. Then the real question is not how long you live, but what you're going to do with your life while it while you're alive. So the question is, you know, now he was talking about people that that trying to prolong their lives as much as possible, and then they don't know what to do with themselves on a Sunday afternoon. It's like, what do you mean? 
right? So, so we should be focusing not on extending life uh, or, or worrying about when, when we're going to die, but rather about we are alive right here, right now. And that's the only thing that matters, right? The past is gone. It's, it's not under your control. You cannot change it. Whatever you've done in the past. So the Stoics, for instance, are very much not into regret. Regret, it's a waste of time as far as the Stoics are concerned. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't learn from your experiences in the past, right? You should definitely do that. You should definitely reflect on your experiences and learn. But regretting and say, oh, I wish I'd done. Well, you wish. It doesn't matter what you wish because you've done what you've done. So the only question is what are you going to do now? If you did something wrong in the past, then are you doing something now to redress that wrong? Right? Instead of regretting it, ask yourself, well, what can I do to make it right, right now? Also, not worry too much about the future because the future is going to come if it's going to come, assuming you do have a future, which you don't know. But if it's going to come, it's going to come at its own pace. It's, you, know, you, you, don't, you can't control it. You don't, there's nothing you can do about it. The best, way that you, you, the best thing you can do to prepare for the future is, in fact, to pay attention to what you're doing right here, right now. Uh, Epictetus often says, uses uh, the, the, um, a word that in, in, uh, in Greek that's translated as attention. And um, uh, the reason for that is because he says nothing was ever improved by not paying attention to it. Right? So imagine he uses this, this analogy, he says, um, and this is also in Seneca. He says, um, so imagine you're the, the captain of a ship and you're piloting a ship. Um, what do you think is going to happen if you don't pay attention? If you just like start wandering around and looking at other things, like, I don't think your, your voyage is going to be improved. If you're in modern days, you know, if you're piloting an airplane, I'm sure the last thing you want from a, from a, from a pilot is, is to hear over the, the speakers like, oh, okay, I'm going to take a break now and I'm going to have a walk or, you know, going to play cards. It's like, no, you're not. You're paying attention to what you're doing right now. Then you're going to play cards once you land, right? There's a proper time for, for playing cards. That's not the time when you're piloting a plane. So that's the notion we should do things by paying attention right here right now because that's where your agency lies you're you're effective now and so you should be asking yourself is this a really good you know uh way to spend your time is it meaningful um, is it is it something that is going to be helpful to you to your loved ones to humanity at large those are the kinds of questions you should be asking if the answer is no then don't do it do something else Thank you so much for joining me today on the Freedom Pack podcast. We'll be back with another episode on Friday. Until then, please come and join us over on YouTube where all these podcasts plus highlights of our best bits are uploaded to YouTube in video format. The best way you can support the show is to come on over and subscribe to us on that platform. Drop a comment on the videos. Let us know what you thought of them and we would love to interact with you. So please come and join us over on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash freedom pact. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.